on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Perry, and today we're visiting with Karenna Gore. Hey, Karenna. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me on the Why on Earth Podcast, which is great. It's a real pleasure, and I'm thrilled we can talk with you, especially given what's going on in the world right now. And um, I, I want to get to that, but first, let, let me introduce you to our audience um, for those who, who don't know you yet. So Karenna Gore is the founder and director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary. The Center for Earth Ethics bridges the worlds of religion, academia, policy, and culture to discern and pursue the changes that are necessary to stop ecological destruction and create a society that values the long-term health of the whole. She is also an ex officio member of the Faculty of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Ms. Gore's previous experience includes serving as Director of Union Forum at Union Theological Seminary, legal work at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett in the Legal Center of Sanctuary for Families, and serving as Director of Community Affairs for the Association to Benefit Children and Riverkeeper. She has also worked as a writer and as the author of Lighting the Way, Nine Women Who Changed Modern America. Ms. Gore is a graduate of Harvard College, Columbia Law School, and Union Theological Seminary. She lives in New York City with her three children. Now, you live in New York City ordinarily, but, but presently you're not there because why? What's going on in the world? Well, um, in this time, this pandemic of uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, um, when the schools shut down and people were asked to work remotely, um, I'm one of those uh, and well aware of the uh, the privileged nature of this who um, was able to go out of the city uh, to a place in the Catskills um, that uh, I have shared with my former husband um, and uh, I have my kids up here, they're doing school uh, from up here and um, I'm doing work from up here. So I'm, I'm in the Catskills, in the Western Catskills, and uh, I apologize if the Wi-Fi drops off, by the way, because it is a bit spotty. Um, but that's where I am, and I really appreciate being able to spend this time with you and your viewers uh, when we can really reflect on so much that's going on right now in the world. Yeah, absolutely, Corinna. And I, I just want to give a little uh, teaser to the audience that we're going to be sharing some special projects and links a little later in the discussion that are um, going live right now in, in the context of Corona and COVID and everything that's happening. So um, want to make sure folks uh, catch that. And it, it's so interesting to me too, that so much of your work uh, centers around relationship with, with earth, with planet, with biosphere, and you do that from one of the largest and most densely populated cities in the world, certainly in the United States. And, and I'm just curious, as, as a way to kind of get us grounded in our discussion today, what does earth ethics mean? And, and what does that mean in the context of education? Uh, well, thank you for that question. Ethics is defined differently depending on who's doing the ethics, uh, but essentially it is questions of right and wrong or good and evil or just or unjust. Uh, it, it's different from law. Um, in some, we want our, our ethics to match up with our laws. It's, it's wrong to kill someone. It's also illegal. Uh, but Ethics is also, um, it's really most important during those times when a deep sense of right and wrong is out of step with the law um, and also out of step with social norms, um, which is another component that, that we look at. So right now, um, with the circumstances that we're in um, ecologically, we have to acknowledge and face the fact that the drivers of ecological destruction um, 
are for the most part perfectly legal and in line with social norms. So ethics becomes especially important uh, in terms of thinking about the earth, uh, how we relate to, to nature, to this planet. Um, we are coming up on the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day. And um, we're in a situation where uh, we have a, a looming climate crisis. Um, we have, uh, I, I was born in the early 19, in the early 1970s and um, in my lifetime, the human population has doubled and the population of, of wildlife has uh, been cut in half. Um, we've lost uh, about half the world's forests. We know the bleaching of the coral reefs and the depletion of um, aquifers of, of groundwater. Uh, we've faced an extinction crisis. There are so many um, ways in which our, the way our society is organized right now is putting great strain on the earth. And so earth ethics looks at that. And um, there are some deep roots uh, to how we got here. And I know you've explored some of this on your other podcasts. Um, so we, we look at those and think about what, are, what, are, what is the circle of moral concern that people normally think about. Um, and I've, I have a friend at the Church of Sweden who says that in any room where there are decisions made about uh, energy policy, environmental policy, there should be three empty chairs designated for those who are most impacted and least likely to have a voice. And those should be for the poor and marginalized peoples of the world, for future generations, and for all non-human life. And when you think about it, if we had paid attention to those three, we would not be in this crisis. So earth ethics is a construct to think about how do we change uh, who we're paying attention to, that sense of moral accountability to include those three empty chairs. In terms of education, it is also um, a very big challenge to try to conceive of how we can become ecological citizens uh, in this world. Um, many people don't know, for example, what watershed they're in. Um, where the waste goes that you throw out in the garbage or you flush down the toilet, uh, where the power comes from when you turn on the lights. And uh, yet these are all connected um, to ecological realities and systems and to other communities that if we're more aware of, then we'll be able to change for the better. It's so interesting to recognize and talk about and, and make express that in many respects, what we might be uh, compelled to do, what we might find to be a moral imperative, uh, doesn't necessarily match with social norms. And it makes me think about the civil rights movement, uh, especially around the middle of the 20th century, and with amazing leaders and a whole bunch of dedicated individuals whose names we don't know as well as somebody like Reverend Martin Luther King, for example, it was the hard work of a whole lot of folks in a lot of different communities who helped to transform the social norms. And of course, it doesn't happen over, overnight. It's not like flipping a switch, but I think it's, it's fair to say that we, we've made some very real progress uh, on that front and that it might provide a, a hopeful pattern uh, for us to think about in terms of the ecological challenges that we're facing. Absolutely. I think that's a, a, a very um, rich connection to draw. And um, it is indeed a time when we can think about that the, a deep sense of right and wrong was out of step with laws and with social norms. And so some of the movements, the lunch counter sit-ins, the freedom rides, were about unmasking the unjustness, the unethical nature of those laws. And um, there were, as you say, people behind the, the scenes um, or in the grassroots layer of that movement, like Septima Clark is one uh, example, who ran citizenship schools in, in the South. Um, and the people that went through and trained um, to know uh, basic uh, civic rights and, um, and also strategies of solidarity, of coordinating, of organizing. Um, among the people that went through those classes was Rosa Parks. Um, another one was John Lewis. So there are people who um, didn't come out of nowhere. They came through a movement and 
a, a type of education that um, was not at all top-down, um, not at all based in kind of a, an ivory tower academy, but based in generating consciousness and knowledge um, and experience among people. So if, if we take that example um, in this time of ecological crisis, then we might be able to do the same thing. Another um, thing about uh, drawing that connection to the civil rights movement is to consider the role that religion played. So um, we're based at a seminary, the Center for Earth Ethics, and um, it has a very interfaith tradition uh, within it. Um, and we don't forward one religious point of view, but we take religion very seriously for a few reasons. Um, for one thing, we, we, we look not only at the role of religion for good, but also the role that it's played for ill. And there are some real theological questions about the illusion of our separation from nature, how we even talk about climate and environment. And, um, and, and sometimes we haven't recognized that it's actually the air and the water and the soil that are part of our bodies. But another thing about engaging religion is to look at what moves and motivates people uh, in, their, in their behavior, um, what can draw from deeper values. And of course, in the civil rights movement, um, we saw that. We saw that from the language that came, as well as from the organizing spaces um, in the churches. And of course, that was especially true in the African-American um, community. But across the board, um, you know, abolitionism and, and civil rights uh, organizing started also um, in, white and black communities in spaces where people were uh, drawing from deep within faith traditions. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Wow, you, you just um, got me firing in a bunch of different directions at once, hearing you connect these dots the way that you just did. That's uh, really wonderful and potent. And it, it strikes me that one of the most significant challenges and opportunities we face in the West, particularly in the United States, is really recognizing the deep roots of the philosophical, the religious uh, disconnection from the natural living world. And of course, there's a whole bunch of literature scholarship on how that relates both to environmental degradation and incredible social um, injustice. And whether we're looking at the, the very challenging uh, uh, derisive critique of Nietzsche 140 or 50 years ago, or looking at more recently the beautiful book by uh, Thomas Berry called, uh, what is it, The the Fate of the Earth and the Christian Future or something like that. There, there's there's yeah, a, the dream of the earth and the great work, yeah. Yeah, there, there's this very big conversation that's been unfolding over generations, and it seems to me we're now living at a moment when how this conversation unfolds and in a sense resolves itself in the next few years is incredibly significant in determining what our near and midterm future is going to look like. And, and I'm curious in your role as an educator, how, how deep do you go into that history? How far back do you go? How, what, what threads are you pulling through for your students to help awaken them to the reality that we're living in right now? Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, and I know of your interest in this and I've heard you speak and, and, uh, and interview others. And, and so I really appreciate your, your work on this, Aaron, and, and happy to, to uh, be part of that conversation. Um, well, for one thing, um, we uh, let me just say that the Center for Earth Ethics really grew out of this conference that we had. Um, I had a I went to Union and got a master's, um, kind of mid life, mid career, and then I had a general public programming job there. And um, we're based is a seminary based in New York City. So the idea was that when the United Nations meets um, every year, perhaps we could have something at Union that deals with religion and spirituality and how, how it's uh, affected, how it relates to whatever the UN happens to be focused on. Um, because the UN, for good reasons, uh, mostly, doesn't directly engage religion, but religion drives so much in the world, both for good and ill. Um, and so anyway, we, I was there in September 2014. The Secretary General at the time, Ban Ki-moon, called the Climate Summit 
uh, it happens now every year, but um, to engage civil society um, because this climate crisis is so um, so urgent and yet governments haven't been able to, uh, this was before the Paris Agreement, get it together to get that agreement. And the idea was to engage civil society, including which includes business, it includes different sectors, but religion was one component. So we were able to have this conference at Union um, called Religions for the Earth. And I, or I was a, an organizer of that. And after that, um, we founded the center. So I tell you that background because um, I wanted to be able to engage in interreligious dialogue in a good way. And it was very clear that um, indigenous traditions uh, were uh, important to that and had not always been included in conventional interfaith dialogue. So looking at the history, um, having some of those conversations, doing some of that reading, looking more closely at the history of colonization uh, and its relationship to ecological destruction um, uh, caused me to understand the, uh, the history of the doctrine of discovery in this country. Um, and that uh, comes out of um, the fact that in the, in the mid um, 15th century, uh, the European um, nations were wanting to um, explore and colonize and extract from, uh, from particularly the Americas and Africa. And from the Vatican, there was this uh, papal bull um, that was that, that a series of them that said to conquer, vanquish, and subdue um, all the flora and fauna, and said that the non-Christian people, meaning all the native people, were part of the flora and fauna. So we look at that um, as a root cause of um, this sense, first of all, connecting white supremacy to ecological uh, destruction, and um, the theology behind it, because it was explicitly coming from a place of Christianity. So that's important. Then if you go deeper, um, back in time even, it's very interesting to look at what, how this happened in the first place um, with the conversion of the Emperor Constantine, um, the Roman Emperor, to Christianity in the early fourth century. So uh, that um, became the marriage of Christianity, which as we know, this wasn't the teachings of Jesus, or the texts of the Bible um, uh, were not already linked to this kind of empire and colonization behaviors, but the, um, although you can have an interesting discussion about the theology there, but, um, but in any event, when Constantine converted and there was this, um, this push to, uh, to make, to Christianize Europe, um, we can look at one source in particular that I think is really interesting. Um, and many people know it already, but it's called, there was an essay in 1967 by a medieval historian um, named Lynn White, who wrote uh, The Historic Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And he said in that essay that the greatest um, psychic revolution in human history was the victory of Christianity over paganism in Europe. And so that takes it back even further in time um, than the doctrine of discovery to show the theological roots of, uh, of a kind of doctrine that said that what is sacred, you cannot see your landscape as sacred, your ceremonies, a kind of fear and, um, of paganism. Uh, and you still see that in, in a lot of the conversations and the kind of culture war that people have developed around, you know, environmentalism or concern for the climate, that somehow you're a tree hugger, that you're worshiping nature. Um, and that is that deep fear of paganism that goes that far back. So we try to look at... Um, we try to look at those histories in order to, um, to see where that's coming from, in order to look clearly at the role that uh, the church has played, um, which of course is not all for ill. There has, there's been a lot of really beautiful theology and work within um, Christianity 
uh, and, and other, other religions. But in a classroom, so we do, we do, we give classes at Union. Um, that's one thing that we're able to do, and it's wonderful to work with Union students. So we can do that. We can, we can do that reading, and then we can also talk to people who are living in communities now. And that's really what's most important is to hear from people. Um, for example, when the the conflict at Standing Rock happened. Um, some years ago, and we could hear from uh, Lakota people who wanted to voice um, what that was about from their perspective. So we try to combine um, lived experiences with those uh, scholarly texts and look at the root causes and then create earth ethics from there. It's absolutely beautiful, so beautiful. It, you have me reflecting on my own heritage and one of the things I've noticed talking with different folks is that in many communities, it, it, when we're talking about indigenous peoples, when we're talking about uh, colonialism, for, for a lot of us, that's this experience that's way over there with, with people we don't know uh, or folks we're not connected to. And being uh, the admixture of different lineages that I am, which include some Mohawk Native American, ancestry, some Slovenian ancestry, some German ancestry, some Celtic ancestry. As I have dug into that over the years, what I've noticed is that all those different peoples were subjugated and subdued at different points in time. And one of the things I like to quip about, although it's serious, you know, for, for those of us who think the Roman Empire failed, we perhaps don't quite understand history because of exactly that moment that um, Constantine uh, marked uh, in the 300s. And I think there's a big invitation for all of us in this moment right now as modern human beings communicating with these incredible uh, global communication technologies to, to really pause for a moment and to go inside and to get in touch with that form of violence that almost all of our ancestors have experienced in, in one way, shape, or form, and, and to own it, and to also recognize that we, while we have that, that side in our backgrounds and history that has been victim, we also often, very often, have that side that was the oppressor and the subjugator. And it seems to me that, uh, Karenna, one of the real deep spiritual opportunities in this for us as individuals is to open our eyes and, and really take a good look at that aspect of our reality and then to start asking the questions, well, how can I start to heal this? How can I start to live differently? How, how can I start mm -hmm. to uh, approach the way I'm thinking? differently right i think it, it evokes a lot of different rich questions and i'm i'm curious what what do you see when you're working with students in classrooms are you seeing a lot of aha moments is it more of a of a slow steeping what what do you observe with people as they're awakening to this Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, thank you for what you said. And I really agree with you. I think we, you know, people uh, in our culture, in our time tend to go to polarity very quickly. And, um, and yet it is a metaphysical and spiritual truth that um, there is a wholeness and a oneness at the center of this, this life experience. Um, and uh, if you are trying to separate yourself or trying to separate from others, there will be an intrusion of the truth and the reality that there isn't that separation actually. And if you can, um, and the healing work and the power really is, um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher said, we are here to awaken to the illusion of our separateness. And, I often, I think sometimes about the, the particular um, kind of thought forms that have become co more common in the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, some people don't like that term Judeo-Christian uh, because, because they, they rightly point out that the, the Jewish tradition stands on its own. But by that I mean um, 
how how through uh, Christianity in this country it's been interpreted, drawing also from uh, from what we call the Old Testament. In any event, um, there there's a, a concept of justice that is very uh, very big, and justice. Um, is uh, uh, through the past years of interfaith dialogue, one of the interesting things that I have learned is that it's not as resonant a concept in um, East Asian or Indic traditions um, or in indigenous traditions. It doesn't mean there's no such thing as um, right and wrong or, uh, or the, the, what justice implies, but as the way that it's used, that we're used to using it, it's not as resonant. There, there are things like balance and harmony. Um, there are other you know, beautiful words that, that are used um, that, that have a very a different connotation than justice. So um, what I wanted to, to say is that um, there are times in classrooms where people, I think, really want, really gravitate towards a kind of, there are bad guys and if we isolate them and condemn them, everything will be fine. <laughs> um, it's a thought form that many of us uh, have. And um, you know, even in your personal life, you know, uh, in your family, in your community, it's just a human nature thing. Um, and so I think that what we've done is too easily fallen into that on a society level. It's, it's, um, it's just much more powerful and healing I think uh, when we interrogate that a little bit more. So when Martin Luther King said famously, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, that I think is quite similar to the Thich Nhat Hanh uh, statement of we are here to awaken to the illusion of our separateness. So it's not only that it's unfair to these group, to, to certain groups of people, um, if something happens disproportionately, it's that it will impact the whole. It will, just like, and the climate crisis is teaching us that. Um, those three empty chairs that I mentioned in the beginning, you know, we, you don't pay attention to them. It's going to threaten the whole, and it's true um, in 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 different on different layers, uh, different levels. Um, so I think that you know, in answer to your original question. In classrooms, it's very interesting. People are coming from really different places, um, but there is a kind of pattern of sort of um, holding these things together. You know, yes, there there are there are these these major um, uh, issues of oppression that must be dealt with and faced. And like James Baldwin said, you know, not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. Mm -hmm. So we have to face them. At the same time, we have to be able to hold that wholeness and understand that to, um, to kind of place blame and, and cast aside uh, whole cultures or groups of people in history is not going to be the ultimate truth. The, the problem with it is that it's not the ultimate truth. So we, these are theological questions and metaphysical questions. Um, you know, going back to the, there are always other dimensions of this to explore, going back to the, the history in Europe of, um, of, of empire and its effect on our, our ecological mindset today to go back to, you know, the Middle Ages in Europe um, uh, and even before then. It's interesting also to note that there were many women um, who were keepers of ceremonies and, and traditions and spirituality. So part of this also was to displace the feminine um, and to take the feminine out of the, the, the sense of who is a keeper of ceremony and sacred uh, works. And of course, you know, we still live with that today. And um, it's, I think, important for us to think about the impact um, that that theology has had, even people who consider themselves secular, have nonetheless often internalized the idea that we have a male God and a female earth, um, just by virtue of, of, of absorbing literature and culture. It's just so deep in there. So what are the implications of that? Um, and how do, we, how do we look clearly at it in order to change it? So it's, it's wonderful to be able to explore those things. Yeah, so, so potent and so important. And I, I'm struck, we have, I have so many friends who are women who are herbalists and midwives and doulas and farmers and, and working with ways they can keep people healthy and help people when they're sick. 
and the reality is during the Middle Ages, a lot of those women were tortured and killed uh, by millions. And not everyone knows that. Not everyone understands that part of our history. And I, th I think it's so important that we dig into that and look eyes open at that aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and I think that, you know, you can see that um, there are there are many women and particularly you know, younger women, but the, the elders are important too. Um, finding uh, voice in this time of uh, understanding the concept of planetary health uh, and um, our connections to water and air and land. And so it's a very it's it's very exciting. Um, and there's so much pain. There's actually real trauma to be worked through um, on a on a community psyche level or a societal psyche level. And I think that's sometimes what you see in the discourse. So um, it's, I think, important also that we're really forgiving and compassionate with somebody who has, you know, kind of gets connected to that anger and pain because it's present. Um, and, and also people who make mistakes, who don't see that it's there and say something wrong. We live in that, and that of course in the academy, that's, that's you know, famously uh, territory for where that goes on. So, um, but it's, it's true everywhere. So I think that um, it's very important that we take care of, of that, uh, take care of our, I don't know, forgiveness capacity and sensitivity capacity, uh, capacity at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's tremendous. I really think and sense that we could probably have a, a whole separate discussion around the healing of trauma and how that's showing up in communities right now. And I, I find myself in a whole bunch of different conversations, many of which are one-on-one uh, -on -one around this issue. And, and while uh, each of our personal experiences is, is very particular and specific, there also seems to be in the, in the collective an increasing awareness uh, that that trauma and healing trauma is uh, bubbling to the surface and becoming more and more in our face, I guess we could say, uh, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and um, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of, of um, discovery right now that, uh, that nature is healing in this regard. And um, that's, uh, you know, we, one of the things that we like to study and talk about at the Center for Earth Ethics is how our economic measurements are, are, are so off, like how we, how we measure a successful society by a, a metric like GDP, um, which doesn't, which doesn't count pollution, depletion of resources, inequality, or um, positive investments like uh, protecting a whole forest. That gets you nowhere with economic growth measured by GDP, but of course we know the long-term benefit for the community. And so um, looking at uh, what is devoured by this system, this short-term uh, monetary gain system, no matter how inequitable, no matter the depletion, no matter the pollution, that's the engine that we're running on right now. And what's getting eaten up with that is these spaces like forests, um, uh, wetlands, spaces, where people uh, can go and more and more, I mean, more and more people should be able to go. There are issues of equity with access to that too, which we have to discuss. Um, but more people are realizing that actually it's good for your health. And there are studies that show that, your, that, that actually heart disease, as well as anxiety and depression, of course, um, are, are um, reduced if people are able to spend time immersed in these natural environments. And the only reason, you know, why it's not um, more prevalent and protected uh, is that it's not making money. And so we've confused money with virtue in our society so much that we're allowing all of this of greatest value to be destroyed. So I'm not saying anything new. Many people have said this. I'm just, um, coming to it uh, in a place where I'd like to put it into uh, an earth ethics construct that we might be able to create some educational um, uh, workshops and curriculum around so that we can start to really walk the change. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so thank you for, for mentioning it. Yeah, absolutely, Karina. And, and I think uh, part of this too is 
the opportunities we have to bring more of the the wild and the natural into our urban and suburban landscapes and and i really see it as a as a both and and i'm i'm so thrilled of course to hear you're you're working on this and you know we there there's so much exciting science emerging right now showing that literally trees are giving off particular pheromones that are affecting our um, cognitive performance that are affecting our neurobiochemistry, affecting our immunity. Uh, we know interacting physically with living soil has all kinds of really positive effects on us as, as individual humans. So it's um, near and dear to my heart. And I'm, I'm really curious. I want to ask you, here we are, it, uh, coronavirus, we're in uh, varying forms of lockdown right now. And you're up in the uh, Catskills with your kids. And I'm curious, what's, what's it like for you to A, probably have a bit more time with your kids or at least some different uh, time with your kids and B, uh, to be in a more natural setting than, than being right there in the middle of Manhattan? How are you noticing the, the impacts from these changes? Well, thank you for asking. I have to say up front that I I I do feel um, I, I I feel a bit uh, uh, guilty. I guess is the word. Um, d kind of dwelling on these silver linings because I'm so aware of the people that don't have space to to escape or to to go. To. Um, and so uh, I just want to preface by saying that that. Um, you know, there are ways to help, like particularly people in um, situations that involve domestic violence, who are living in poverty. There's uh, so many children, you know, who rely on the public schools for food um, and are now in a situation at home. So just to say um, that I think that those of us who are able to be someplace else other than a city where we normally live can, um, can give back and meet that what really is a responsibility um, to help uh, provide to those people through organizations that you trust in each you know city I know you have a, a, a bigger viewership than just New York City so I won't name mine but I do think that's really important to keep in mind um, but to your question uh, it's being able to see the stars at night um, Pay attention to the moon cycle, um, it, how it uh, how it appears here in the sky, um, and walk outside to get fresh air. You know, fresh air is really medicinal. Um, and I was even reading that they they've known that for some they you know have known that we've all known that humans have for a long time, um, going back to different. Um, different epidemic, different pandemics and epidemics and plagues and the Spanish flu and all of that. That actually fresh air walks is is medicinal for for your lungs and particularly if you're out um in a place where there are a lot of trees so i am i'm enjoying um being able to have that kind of access whereas normally i'm i'm um i'm on the ninth floor of an apartment building you know i'm very fortunate love my home but super noisy super urban um and it is definitely a different uh type of experience being here for going on now into the second second month um, of this uh, quarantine time or shelter in place time. Okay, so another thing is just having time with kids uh, and being able to um, just take those moments where, you know, normally people are coming and going and you actually are just sitting with each other uh, to, um, with the time to actually talk. No one is having, going off to see friends or, or whatever else. And that has been wonderful just to really embrace that time with whoever you're with. And of course, if you don't, if you're not physically with them, you can, you can do that on FaceTime. I think people are thinking about who are the, who are the elders in my life, you know, who maybe feel especially vulnerable right now, you know, and can I call them and check on them? So it's also on the phone, but um, you know, for example, we like to have fires here and, um, and, uh, and I was realizing, that you know my 13 year old son should gather firewood in the, in the woods you know this is we need more of it we ha we haven't gotten a delivery of of it he needs to go do it himself and and to make that it's kind of feels like back to the original instructions as um as some indigenous people have taught to go back to the original instructions which is basically what's our food shelter um 
a situation? How do we work together in a in a family unit to provide for it, to share the the the, the meals and the um, the cleaning, housekeeping work, and the and um, the container of your home? When you think about shelter in place, it's also where are we? And to be really rooted and um, and to look around, take a good look at at where you are and what your life is like, is a gift. Um, and again, well aware that there are people suffering through this and, and don't want to, uh, but again, we can, a lot, a lot of this in our, in our discourse now, we have to be more, more comfortable with paradox or withholding two things together at the same time. And so that's what I'm trying to do um, with this coronavirus. And it's been interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks, Karina. And I, I'm, I'm um, reflecting on uh, your, your three children, the two older of your three children are roughly the same ages as my daughter and son. And um, it's, it's such an interesting chapter of life. And what a joy. We, we, my kids are not in the same vicinity as I am. So it, for us, it's phone conversations and interacting a bit more in that way. And, and clearly, a, a lot of us are not quite as busy or frenetic in our day-to-day -day lives at the moment. So there's more spaciousness for that kind of communication, yeah. it seems. Um, and what a joy. And I'm, I'm also sitting here thinking, I, I'm trying to do some quick math in my head uh, to ask you this question, because I, I just, I have to ask. Um, I'm sure some of our audience would give me a hard time if I, if I didn't ask. But okay, so when, when your dad, Al Gore, was vice president, you were roughly in the age range as our kids currently. Am I doing that math right? Or? Yeah. Okay. It happened. Um, yeah. Okay. So what was that like as a, an adolescent young adult? Uh, your, your, your dad is um, uh, the vice president of, you know, one of the most powerful nations on the planet. There's a lot going on, I imagine. Can you give us just a glimpse into that experience in a way I imagine, you know, most of us in the audience might hope to uh, glimpse only through a movie or something like that? Uh, well, thank you for the question. Um, sure, I'm happy to. Um, so I'll, I will say first that my father um, was elected to Congress when I was three. So in 1976, he went to Congress. Um, and so from, he was in Congress, in the House of Representatives for eight years representing uh, Tennessee and then eight years in the Senate representing Tennessee. And we, I grew up between um, a farm in Middle Tennessee and the suburbs of Washington, D.C. because of that. Um, he ran for president himself for the first time when I was 14. Um, so uh, that was from that time understood to be his goal uh, and, um, and his calling, I should say. Um, and so um, by the time there was already that sense of, of um, what, what being in the public eye was about in terms of that public service and those issues that he particularly cared about and the role of government um, in life and how it can be uh, a force for good if, if done correctly and all of that. Um, and so when he in, was in 1992 that he joined the ticket and I was between, I had just uh, ended my freshman year of college at that point. So you're right, I hadn't thought about it before, thank you, that it's the same age actually as, as, um, as my older two kids pretty much when this all happened. Um, and so he, he then of course did uh, become more well known and, um, and there, there's a kind of a bubble that happens in that life uh, because of security, because of the intense kind of media scrutiny, which is often um, uh, not really based, it's like there's a, there's a gap between reality and kind of, you know, image or illusion. There's a real gap that you have to live in there, like in terms of personas and what the story is and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a strange place to be. Um, 
And I was already in college. My parents were not the kind of people that said like, you know, oh, you have to dress this way and talk this way and behave this way or like, they weren't like that. They're like from the 60s generation. They were really like, you know, do your own thing. Um, so I didn't face that kind of internal pressure from the family. And I did largely sort of live my life. I didn't want to have um, Secret Service protection. And I was given uh, the option not to um, because I did, didn't want it. And so I didn't, um, I, I stayed out of, of, of the kind of middle of it uh, as much as I could in those early years. But of course, lived it vicariously and it, it affected our, our family in a big way. Um, so it was, um, it was interesting in, in many ways there, it's a huge honor to be able to participate in, in sort of civic activities in the front row, whatever they might be, you know, an inauguration of the president in which the assembled there, you have Supreme Court justices and members of the house and the Senate and to be, to feel that the, that the pulse of that civic life from a kind of, uh, perch there. Um, yeah, there, there were enormous privilege, privileges for which I am grateful uh, for. Um, but, uh, but also, I would say there's a fair amount of imbalance in terms of your connection to what really matters in life that you have to navigate. You know, you, the, really, and, and some of the illusion falls away. Like anybody that's been through this in life, but people go through it in small scale ways too. I know, like if your father was the principal of the school that you go to or whatever, you know, where there are people who are maybe not, you're actually your real friend. They're, they're actually your friend because of that, you know, all that kind of stuff goes on and you just navigate it. Um, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, I learned through it. The 2000 election was, was quite uh, difficult as it was for the whole country. Um, and then since then have sort of followed a, a winding hilly path to where I am now at the, um, Center for Earth Ethics. Yeah, well, cool. Well, thanks for, for sharing that with us, Corinna. And uh, listen, I want to um, get to a couple of other topics that I know we need to uh, hit on in order to share with our audience, including this really exciting poetry project that you guys are working on. But let me first uh, pause quickly to thank uh, some of our sponsors and, and to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Perry, and we're visiting today with Karenna Gore from the Center for Earth Ethics. And a huge shout out to our supporters, uh, which include a whole bunch of folks who have joined our monthly giving program um, at a variety of levels. Um, and I've, I think we, in fact, have friends contributing at $1 per month, and everything helps. Uh, if you haven't yet uh, joined the monthly giving program and you'd like to, you can go to whyonearth.org slash support. Um, a, a huge shout out also to uh, the Lidge Family Foundation, Patagonia, Purium, Earth Coast Productions, Earth Water Press, and Wele Waters. And some of you are familiar that we've got these really exciting partnerships uh, with a few of those uh, companies and so, for example, you can go to the Purium uh, link at the Why on Earth website, and if you purchase any of Purium's organic supplements and uh, plant-based products, some of that revenue comes back to the Why on Earth community to support our community mobilization work. Earthwater Press is our new social enterprise helping folks publish their books. Check that out, earthwaterpress.com. And then Waylay Waters is our CBD aromatherapy soaking salts. Now, in this time of staying at home, uh, you too can have a spa at home experience with Waylay Waters. And, and it's a great way to keep your immune system strong, um, relax a bit, uh, get a better night's sleep. You can learn more about the Waylay Waters monthly program at wineearth.org slash Waylay, W-E-L-E dash waters with an S. So a huge thanks to everybody for making all of this possible. And, uh, you know, Karenna, we're, we're all I, I can tell doing some different things as a result of COVID-19 and some folks are sharing more uh, live music recordings through social media and others of us are, are playing more with things like poetry and you guys are doing some really cool things with poetry as well and uh, I would love to hear about this and share with our audience what you're up to and how they can get engaged and get, get involved. 
Oh, thank you so much for, for mentioning. We are, um, the Center for Earth Ethics has partnered with the WIC Poetry Center at Kent State. And um, they have a really wonderful platform um, called Traveling Stanzas. And uh, what it is, is it presents poems and uh, then gives the, the, the a person the opportunity to interact with, with the poem. Um, so there, we, we curated a selection of six poems that we thought were particularly uh, good for this 50th Earth Day. Um, and you can then take a prompt from one of them, um, which often is the first line, maybe it's a different line, and write your own poem, uh, and then post it and share it. And um, there's a second portal on this, uh, this site, which is called Emerge, and we've curated 10 uh, documents, um, some texts that we thought would be very interesting to read in this time. An example, we have an excerpt from the IPCC climate report. We have the Haudenosaunee Address to the Western World from 1977. Um, we have the Gettysburg Address. We have writings from Howard Thurman um, and Terry Tempest Williams. And, and so it's really interesting to look at these texts that we've curated. And then there, that you do an erasure poem. So you're able to select in this, in this very cool, colorful, fun, interactive platform, select certain words highlight certain words and then everything else falls away and you're left with those words to create your poem from. So we're really excited about it. It's a way just to get us thinking and connecting and finding our voices and it's on earthstanzas.com. Great. And, and that stanzas with a, with a Z in there, right? We'll make sure that link is in the uh, show notes. Um, and you've, Thank you. you've shared some other links. You've got the poems.travelingstanzas.com, which is the project out at Kent State, right? Um, and then there's within the same thing. Okay, cool. And then there's globalpeacepoem.com. It's within the same project. So I don't want okay. it to sound too complicated, but if you yeah. click on any of those, then you can go to the other ones and just play around with it. Okay, fabulous. While we're at it, I'll make sure to mention too that uh, folks can learn more about Center for Earth Ethics uh, at centerforearthethics.org. And um, you guys are also on Facebook, Earth Ethics CTR, uh, and Twitter, uh, also Earth Ethics CTR. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting back to our, the earlier part of our conversation and, and really deepening into this sense of some of the origins of conflict and, and, and the challenges that we're facing. And there's been some intense tensions. And then on the other hand, right now, there's this thing called eco-ministry, which from my perspective is really helping to resolve and to heal across a lot of these different arenas and disciplines. And I'm wondering if you might share with folks what what is eco-ministry and how does that play a role in your life? Well, eco-ministry, we, we didn't invent this term. It's sort of been bubbling up as people have been thinking about the intersection of um, the environment and, and religion. Uh, it, it has a couple different aspects of it. So for one thing, ministry is um, in the conventional sense of a faith leader, a, a, a reverend, a pastor, a rabbi, and a mom. Um, but it's also, um, it's also broader than that. People have a kind of ministry if they're doing, uh, working in a substance abuse recovery clinic, if they're working uh, on a community garden and trying to draw people in uh, to, to, to practice growing their own food. There's a type of ministry that, um, that is not necessarily tied to the conventional faith traditions. So that we take that broader view. Um, but we also are interested in the organizing power and reach of conventional faith communities. So um, we, we, we do both. And we have an annual minister's training, um, Ministry in the Time of Climate Crisis, where we have brought a cohort of about, um, it's been 
30, 40 um, mid-career faith leaders, but again, with that wider uh, lens as to, as to who we're talking about, um, and, uh, and, and come together and learn um, the science and the policy aspects of climate change, and then also um, reflect together on sacred texts and teachings, ritual and ceremony, and also um, topics like ecological grief. So um, there are there are different roles that ministry can play. There's 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 the prophetic and the pastoral. Um, prophetic is truth telling, which is so important right now. It's like what we were talking about earlier, seeing the value in in these things like forests that are devalued by our economic system, telling the truth about what we're missing uh, with the way that, you know, our economies and our politics are devised right now. Um, and then pastoral, really uh, helping people as individuals, families and communities to grapple with loss and grief and trauma. And of course, some of that um, is, is tied to the ecological crisis that we're in right now, whether it's from a sense of impending climate impacts uh, for our children, um, or uh, whether it's from an actual present uh, environmental assault because you live in a toxic neighborhood and uh, you're not able to stop yet another toxic factory going in there. Um, that, that these are all dimensions of the ecological uh, situation that we're in right now. So eco-ministry is a way to, um, to be together with people who are wanting that to be part of their lives, their vocational and personal paths. And we often do, of course, learn as much from them um, about what's going on as we're able to impart. Um, so it's a it's an important uh, part of the center. That is so beautiful. I get really, really excited about this sort of thing. And I've spent a lot of time around different um, ministers and ministries. And uh, I am so thrilled uh, to have met Reverend Brian Kunkler from Akron, Ohio. And we did a podcast with him a while back. And we actually toured his permaculture food forest project. And he's working with low-income um, immigrant minority communities in the Akron area uh, to help install food forests in these vacant and often dilapidated um, properties that the city owns. And it, it's such a beautiful expression of this kind of uh, eco-ministry. I don't, I don't know how your, your nominating process works, but I would certainly throw Brian's uh, name in that. In that oh, hat. yeah. His theology I'd love to be it's amazing also. I went to one of his services and, and he's evangelical and he started bringing it and preaching it. And I, I just, I was smiling ear to ear because it was such a beautiful expression of the love at the core of the Christian message as it relates to mm -hmm. being in service in these times and eyes open. Um, so it just, it, it thrills me that, that you and Center for Earth Ethics are helping to really cultivate this and I imagine there's a whole lot of cross-pollinating that occurs when you bring these different uh, community leaders together. Absolutely and thank you for the way that you are putting spotlight on uh, those voices and um, everybody should watch your podcast with Ryan. It's available on your site, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't remember which episode right. off the top of my head but you can find it there. Um, okay. Let me ask one, one last kind of question here before we sign off for the day. Um, the, the United Nations has sustainable development goals, 17 of them. And, you know, I give talks and workshops throughout the country, uh, often in the breadbasket, middle America, Kansas, Ohio, what have you. And it, it's amazing to me having spent some time around some of the United Nations gatherings, including with the uh, big climate march last fall, um, that we have folks in our society who are doing a lot of really wonderful work through and with and in collaboration with United Nations and folks affiliated with it as part of a global community. On the other hand, we've got a lot of folks who don't have that direct experience and have incredible mistrust toward the United Nations. Mm. And one mm -hmm. of the things we've been doing with the Why on Earth community is sharing a bit more openly about the various sustainable development goals, why they matter, why they're important. And my very favorite is number 17, actually, the, the collaboration, the, the ways we get to work together. Yes. 
Um, but can, yeah. can you share with us how you're weaving that uh, piece and dimension into your educational and, and eco-ministry work? And are you encountering some of these uh, disparate rea reactions and responses as well? Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. And um, it's, um, so 17 goals is a lot of goals. Um, it, it, it's a really uh, wonderful effort to shift the development paradigm. So uh, people, it's interesting, you know, the, the, um, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed in, in 1948 uh, and the, the United Nations was new, the population was, I think, 2.8 billion. And now it's, I think, 7.8 or so in, in growing. Um, at the same time, there's been a kind of turbocharge of uh, cor internet, global corporations, industrial um, uh, processes, um, the oil and gas industry, especially uh, kind of in their activities. And so we've seen that there's been this realization that the goal, as it used to be to end poverty um, by uh, just doing economic growth, um, was actually destroying the ecosystem that we all depend on. Um, so if you're going to end poverty by building a ton of coal mines and lots of factories so people have more dollars a day, you know, it's, it's not going to do anybody very much good if all of a sudden the rivers are polluted and the soil is depleted and um, people end up being having to be refugees because their region is uninhabitable because of climate change. So that's the central realization uh, that, that, that the development paradigm has to change to be based on more than just short-term monetary, short-term economic growth. Um, and the, the SDGs really reflect, um, you know, a, a great depth of understanding and breadth of ambition in terms of gender equality, you know, life under the ocean, life above the ocean, water and sanitation. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, it's an interesting group of goals. Number 13 is climate action. So the critique of them is um, that even within uh, this structure, there is still a use of GDP economic growth or still a use of some metrics to measure it that don't really take into account necessarily um, protecting these things um, like lo local cultures and, um, and, and, and forests and soil. You know, I've heard Ratan Lal of Ohio State, great soil scientist, um, says that the, you know, soils aren't mentioned enough and that maybe we need to have, you know, a clean soil act in this country. And I know you've done so much work with soil, so I'm bringing that up in particular. So there are a few blind spots, I would say, um, but it's all a, a, a very important, um, I mean, the other thing would be that, you know, you can meet some of these goals, like, uh, if you want to say, um, like we know we have to stop digging and burning fossil fuels, okay? Uh, we have to end that fossil fuel era or else the whole thing isn't going to matter because we won't have a habitable earth um, within whatever time frame. And so there are some goals, like, you know, even if you had gender equality by having all women in charge of fossil fuel companies, you know, if you said you're ending poverty, and one of the goals is actually economic growth. So you could say you're meeting, like, you know, several of these goals and yet be doing something that undermines number 13, which is the climate um, one. And so they're, they're, that's just to give the sense of where some of the critique is coming from, I think, that you're referencing. And some people like indigenous, traditional indigenous peoples will say, you know, the, the goals say, um, leave no one behind. And they're like, behind? Where are we at? Where do we all have to go? You know, we're trying to go back to original instructions. We don't want to go like, what do you mean? You know, take everybody where? Why would we necessarily want to go there? So there's an interesting critique. Um, but, you know, we have to also just step back and realize this is all we've got. The United Nations um, is what we have to work with. Um, it's by definition about nation states. Um, and it's by definition working in the world we live in now. So we have to deal with that. But within it, um, there are pathways to transformation and having this discussion around the 17 sustainable development goals um, if we all engage them a bit more and make them both intelligible um, and accountable to people really living in frontline communities it can be a wonderful tool for change 
Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you for for reviewing that uh, with us and for us. And so, uh, Corinne, I'm so I'm so thrilled we were able to connect and have this conversation today. And before signing off, I just want to ask you: Is there is there anything else uh, that we didn't get to, or that you want to be sure to share with our audience before we, uh, you know, say goodbye for now? Oh, just that I really appreciate Why on Earth. I appreciate the work you do, Aaron. Um, I really, uh, it was wonderful to um, have you visit Union Theological Seminary and to um, see the presentation you did about soil. And I'm just delighted to be connected. And I hope folks will tune into your other podcasts and that we can find a way to work together again in the future, too. Yeah, I, I very much look forward to that also, Corinna. And uh... Oh my goodness, it's it's wonderful talking with you and I hope you have a, a fabulous rest of the day and um, take good care with all that's going on. And thanks for all, all your work and all you're doing for our world right now. Thank you very much, Aaron. Take care and, and happy Earth Day uh, and hope to see you again soon. Yeah, sounds great, Corinna. Happy Earth Day. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.